This is the Winding Paths Podcast, and I am Joseph Gristel. My goal is to empower you to create your own winding path by sharing the stories and lessons of other attorneys and the insights I've gained walking my own. Today, we are talking to Jonathan Vass. Jonathan is the head of investor relations at Adobe. If you don't know what Adobe is, you can... Uh, actually, if you don't know what Adobe is, I'm not going to help you out there. you got to do some self-help. Like so many others, Jonathan tried to be an artist, but somehow ended up as a lawyer. Ah, the magnetism of law school for the indecisive and the confused. You can do so many things with a law degree. Hmm, why do those so many things almost always manifest as big law? Jonathan graduated Harvard Law School in 2004, and guess what he did after? If you guessed big law, ding, 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 you must be on the clock right now. Yep, Jonathan worked at some big law firms before learning about a role at Adobe based in Utah. Feeling the artistic call of Adobe in the pull of the Utah wild, Jonathan hopped across the country to become a lawyer at Adobe. There, he drew with pencils and crayons on legal documents, which is how they insist on doing red lines at Adobe. I'm just kidding, just kidding. Come to think of it, this reminds me of Adam Newman in Episode 7. Adam used to fly to Minnesota on the off chance that Kevin Warren, then COO of the Minnesota Vikings, might have a few minutes to say hello and keep up their relationship. Well, guess what? Adam Newman became chief of staff at the Big Ten Conference when Kevin became commissioner. And get this, this was less than two years out of law school and after spending just one year as an associate at Simpson Thatcher. If you haven't heard that story yet, go back and listen to it now. Then come back and listen to this one. Then get back on the clock. If you think you need to wait years and years to do awesome things, think again. Sometimes it's just about being proactive, putting yourself out there, adding value without being asked, and being persistent as hell. And sometimes it takes time. You may not know where you're going. The journey may need to unfold slowly. Jonathan's path meandered through a number of legal roles before he felt ready to raise his hand when the opportunity came. Anyway, it's time for you to start listening to the episode. So without further ado, here we go. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I am taking a look at your LinkedIn, as I've done with many guests before. Looks like you graduated from The Ohio State University, studying political science in 2000. You graduated from Harvard Law School in 2004. And then you did the typical thing. You did a clerkship. You worked at a large law firm as an associate, made your way to another law firm, and then ultimately, many years later, became vice president of investor relations at Adobe, which is not quite law, but perhaps there's some involved in that. So maybe you could just walk us through how you got to where you are today, not as a lawyer perhaps today, but the journey to get you there. Yeah, thanks so much, first of all, for not forgetting the V in <laughs> State University. Yeah, I thought you'd appreciate that. Yeah, and then the rest is gravy after that. Um, I was like, what are they talking about? The V? The V? <laughs> yeah, if you've met anyone who went to the Ohio State University, you would know. It was a long and winding journey. I'm sure a lot of people would say that about their own journey. For me, if anything along that road was the least likely it probably would have been going to Harvard Law School because you don't see this on LinkedIn. But when I graduated high school, I actually started out at a small art college called Columbus College of Art and Design. I did not grow up being a, a big academic achiever or coming from a family that really had a culture around kind of academics. But my mom was a music teacher and I grew up really interested in the arts. I wanted to be an artist. 
And then after a year at CCAD, I ended up going to Ohio State to study music. And then when that didn't work out, I, I often tell people, aspiring artists who end up not having quite the talent required, what do you do? You go to law school. Go going to HLS was something that was definitely not expected of me. And I found when I was there that my story was in one way similar. And Joseph, you might you might recall the same, similar to other students, which was when I talked to folks at orientation and, and, other, and other people in my 1L class, there was a pretty high percentage that didn't necessarily want to be a lawyer. We wanted to be educated in a particular discipline. And the sales pitch going in was, you can do anything with a law degree. And for me, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I knew it wasn't work at a law firm for my whole career. You can know, I pause you there for a second, Jonathan? How do you, what do you think of that sales pitch now? I, it actually, I mean, there are aspects of, of it that are true, but I found that the claws that sink in pretty deep that move you in the direction of law were, they sunk in deeper than I expected. And you get all of this momentum building in your career around the discipline of law. And for me, I had a mountain of debt that needed to be paid off. And so you go, you start out in that law firm and then suddenly it becomes difficult to find the way out. And in fact, here I am a couple decades later, and still when people hear that I'm no longer practicing law as my day job, they think, oh, that must have been hard or what a winding path that was. So the assumption is once you go to law school, you are qualified to do one thing, and that's be a lawyer. So it did feel like a little bit of a bait and switch for about a decade for me. Just a decade? <laughs> do, you, yeah. do you think that is equally true today of students? If a college student came to you and asked you, should I go to law school? Would you tell them you could do anything from law school? Or would you tell them if you really want to be a lawyer, go to law school? Otherwise, maybe think about something else. The latter, for sure. I would <laughs> tell them if you want to do anything, go get an MBA. And that was something I didn't consider. And I have no regrets. And I really enjoyed aspects of practicing law. And I may go back to practicing law. And I'll talk about the reasons I'm more happy in what I do today. But ultimately, I think that there are too many law schools and there are too many lawyers. And it is harder to break out of that than the pitch was. And I kind of thought, coming from a smaller size city, not really with a background that, that made me even dream big about my own career. I, once, once I got that big envelope from Harvard and they said I could come, I thought for sure it was an administrative error. But I thought, after this... I can do whatever I want. And it's not as exactly true. Why not? Because people are so skeptical who are non-lawyers. You're talking to, it, within that closed circle of people in law school, everybody can pat each other on the back and say, sure, we can do whatever we want. And we know examples of this hedge fund giant who went to law school or this CEO or that CFO all who went to Harvard Law School. But from outside of that circle, People are very skeptical to think of, why would you go to law school if you don't want to be a lawyer? And in, if that's in fact the case, it sounds like bad decision making. I love this. The, my post this morning on LinkedIn was all about how people hire for roles with checkboxes in mind, and there's awesome talent pools out there with really capable people. And it's just the nature of things that often talented people take time to find their niche and they make a decision to explore one thing and that doesn't pan out. And then you have these people who go on to do unbelievable things and each one has to invent how they jump over that gap. And it's just crazy that no one has an open enough mind to say, 
yeah, I'll give you six months or a year of onboarding time to learn and then be a rock star over here because we need rock stars. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, pulling it off required me to go through the journey of learning to love to be a lawyer. And I'm sure that's not what everybody has said who's been on this podcast. But I practiced law again, and I'm still a qualified lawyer and I may again, but for 15 years or so. And you look closer at my LinkedIn, you'll find that I worked at a large law firm for about three years. I left and moved to Buenos Aires to, to do a bunch of freelance writing and do volunteer work with children living in some very tough neighborhoods. And that was a little bit of soul searching for me. And then I came back and I went back to practicing law, ultimately found a job I loved at Adobe, working for an organization whose mission I loved. But I think I wouldn't have managed to find the right career and the right role had I not figured out how to love what I did. And I think a lot of people need to learn that lesson also. And, and I did enjoy it eventually. I didn't ever enjoy law firms. But once I made it in-house, I really felt like I was part of the team I loved. But I never lost sight of the fact that long term, I wanted to try something outside of being a lawyer. There's a parable I like to quote about a bird that flies from tree to tree and every tree it goes to smells and the bird fails to realize that its tail is dirty and it's tracking the smell wherever it goes. And the lesson of that in this case is that many of us need to up our skills at being able to be absorbed, to calm our minds and be engaged with what's in front of us rather than be stuck in a diffuse nervous energy or jumping or going all over the place. And that's an internal skill that one needs to build. There is separately the question of the external match to your environment and how well your interests line up with what you're doing. And both of those need to be optimized. But you can try to solve the external your entire life if you never pay attention to the internal and learn to enjoy something. No, it doesn't have to be your first thing, but you have to build those skills somewhere. Then you never will be satisfied with what you do. I think that's very true. My wife is a therapist also, and she many times has told me similar things that you have to start by looking inward and figuring out how to solve for that and then look outward and figure out what it is you really need. But yeah, you have to do the work in both places. So you went to Adobe as legal counsel. That's right. And then what was that journey like from starting out as a lawyer to where you are today? When, when I was looking for that job, I was practicing at a law firm in Boston. It taught me a lot, particularly, you know, the nice guy from Ohio learning to have thick skin. And when I was there, I said, okay, I'm ready to move in-house. But my requirement was, I'm not going to take a job at an organization that I don't like what they actually do for the world. That was the first requirement. Was, I never felt ownership or passion for what a lot of my clients at law firms did because I just wasn't connected with their end mission. And the other one was, I don't care where I start, but I have to be able to envision being there in 10 years time. And when I found that Adobe was looking for an M&A and capital markets lawyer in Utah, I went all in and I said, this is the one. And I worked my network I had a lot of law school classmates who lived in Utah. I made every call and I just fully went for it. And it was a pretty low paying at the time job, just an individual contributor role. And I didn't care. 
my, my point of view was this is a company about creativity. I had learned to use Photoshop and Illustrator back in that freshman year of art school. And I loved the products. And I just, I had the point of view that if I go in and just be myself, I never felt like I could be myself, by the way, at law firms. I even had a different pair of glasses I wore in my personal life, in my professional life. But I said, if I be myself, try to solve problems and be just be a part of the team, it's going to work out. And it's been 11 and a half years now since then. So definitely has. And I've had a lot of fun, different twists and turns since I've been at Adobe. How was the difference between Adobe and a law firm? So you talked about never feeling like you could be yourself at a law firm, which I think is a relatively common sentiment. And then you get to Adobe. Can you talk about the difference in experience with regards to feeling open, feeling connected to your colleagues and being yourself in Adobe versus in the law firm setting? Yeah, the, the fact that I felt free to be myself is purely a testament, I think, to Adobe and its culture, which is well known. But I remember in that first six months, the thing that stood out the most to me is that law firms really inject this concept into associates that, that to me, it's now looking back, it's elitism. It is you, your time is too valuable and you are too important to bother with things like word processing or printing or making copies for yourself and doing a lot of the sorts of mundane things. Not, you're not going to be buying your own equipment, but use Use assistance for that sort of work. Use the word processing department. Your job is to think you are an intellectual being. And when I showed up at Adobe on day one in Orem, Utah, I didn't even have a keyboard to my desktop computer. And somebody was like, ah, there's a closet somewhere at the other end of the building. Good luck. I had to order my own pens online. There was no database of every type of legal document to start from. It was, hey, we, we're not a law firm. Good luck with things. You have to scramble and do it all yourself. And it was, it really twisted my mind in knots for the first six months or so to learn, oh, wait a minute, I'm at the bottom of the totem pole. I've got to prove my own worth. And you've got to do most things on your own when you're in-house. And do you feel like that contributes to, say, a more egalitarian environment? Yeah, ab absolutely, it does. And in fact, the, I spent five or six years at law firms. And as I mentioned, they are seducing you into this idea that we're somehow part of the elite. But while I was at Adobe, I, I remembered the dozens of odd jobs I'd had. I worked as a paper boy from seventh grade on. When I was in high school, I had multiple jobs. I did construction. I painted houses. I worked all through college. On those jobs, I was making six bucks an hour. And throughout my time at Adobe, Anytime I had to go to the file room and go through old boxes or do really mundane tasks, I just remembered, hey, I've done a lot tougher work for a lot less money. And I had to re-educate myself in not being an elitist and just being a part of the team. And, and it's actually a way better state to live in, frankly. And if you talk to good companies with good cultures, when you talk to folks all the way up to the C-suite, you'll see that people don't forget about how to be a human and how to clean up your own plate after a meal. Yeah. Oh, I love that you're saying the clean up your own plate. I remember at my firm, I don't know if this is the, I wonder if it's the norm. I suspect it is. There was no garbage on the side, right? When you had the conference, what's going on? Exactly. Exactly. And then if you're not a lawyer in a law firm, it's always as if you're like a second class citizen. When you were in the conference room, it was you left your plate. I, the first time I looked around, I'm like, 
can I throw this can out? How do I throw this can out? But even if you're treated nicely and respectfully, you're to some extent, the other. And it's like very few people have relationships with or even understand all the non-legal functioning. I, I'm controlling myself from using the term back office. The reason I am is because I used that term with somebody who was in a non-legal function and like they educated me. That's not how they think of themselves and appropriately. And it's yeah. like, that's it, it, a perfect example of this kind of like, us and them, whereas like often they have the perpetuity. They're there for 20 years because the jobs are pretty stable and they can be interested. Uh, yeah. There's this wonder, wonderful episode of Friends. I'm dating myself, but Ross Geller is, is a paleontologist and works at a museum and all the scientists wear white coats. And then Joey Tribbiani gets a job there as a tour guide. And I think they wear navy blazers. And it's just so funny. There's this whole rift between the white coats and the navy blazers and they can't sit together in the cafeteria and this whole class system in the museum. And it always reminded me of that law firm vibe between the lawyers and then what do you call them? And we even debate this at Adobe. Do you think, are they non-lawyers? Are they staff? Are they administrative professionals? But yeah, you really do have a little bit of a caste system there. What would you change, by the way, if you had to change one thing and we're back in a law firm? Gosh, that's a Anything hard... come to mind? You can pass. I would, I would frankly change how early on associates were made to feel that they needed to go out and develop business because it takes a really long time just to learn to practice as a lawyer. If you think about what, what physicians do after med school, how long they're in a residency and then how long to specialize they would be in a fellowship. For me, once I was three, four years in at a law firm, there was a lot of pressure to go out and win business. And I think that was too much of a pressure cooker when you're already just trying to figure out how, for me, what the ins and outs of the 33 and 34 acts are. And that, that was one of the reasons I knew pretty early on that this wasn't a place for me. Interesting. I think that varies a lot firm by firm. I think some firms have the opposite problem in that they have so much business that there's no chance to actually do biz dev and they don't even, they won't reward you for it until you're way on. So that's interesting. I think there could be a lot of variance. You get to Adobe. I, it sounds like you found yourself a keyboard eventually yeah. and you start clicking away and getting work done. And so you started as a, an entry level counsel job, associate counsel. Yeah, that's and right. How did that evolve over time? I, I was the first direct report for my boss, Justin, who was the lead corporate lawyer. And so it was the Justin and Jonathan show. And his job was to show up in meetings and be prepared and negotiate and work with the board of directors. And I pretty much did the typing and the reading. And I worked harder in those first two years at Adobe than I'd ever worked in my life. And I had an infant at home and a very long commute. And so it was a wild ride at the beginning. And I think Justin, who is now a dear friend of mine, he really, he really challenged me to make a difference. But the reason I was able to was frankly because at the time, Adobe's entire corporate legal department was two people and an admin. And that means that a lot this is, of things... Well, just to set the... Just to get the time frame here. This is 2011, right? Yes. And Adobe's legal department in 2011 is Justin and Jonathan. This is the corporate legal department. So the people that do M&A and corporate governance and the 10Ks, the public filings. So okay. there, there were probably a total of maybe 80 legal professionals okay. at the time. Okay. But the corporate team was small. So we used a lot of outside counsel. And there were all kinds of opportunities to just ask 
what can I optimize or help us scale up? I remember I noticed that our insider trading policy was no longer current. And I just asked Justin, I said, hey, do you mind if I take a crack at just drafting the next version of this? And he said, sure, have at it. And the next year I said, hey, we don't have a corporate governance website yet. Do you mind if I start working on one? He said, sure, have at it. And so I found that if you just volunteer to solve problems, and this is always my advice to interns and new entrants, I say, don't, if you see a problem, you're going to be tempted to assume there's 20 other people aware of it and working on it. Assume that no one else is aware of it and no one else is working on it. And don't throw a grenade and just say there's a problem. Volunteer to solve it and everything else will work. out. And that's what I did. And I just, Justin was very willing to say, yeah, how about it? Let's see. Let's see what you can come up with. And over the years, the team did grow. The corporate legal team now at Adobe is much larger than that. But still, some of those early things that I got to work on, like our insider trading policy or building out a new website and creating new templates for, for board meeting materials. But those are things that I saw make a difference in the company. And so it was rewarding for me too. So you start off as entry-level counsel in the corporate legal department handling securities filings and associated public markets related issues. How long did you spend in that role? And then how did you, how did the role change and evolve? over? Yeah, it was, I think, two or three years. And we, and Adobe did a number of acquisitions then. So I really got to get to know the business and get to know all sorts of different teams through these not huge acquisitions, but some midsize and smaller acquisitions. That kept me really busy. And I think around 2013 was when I was promoted to senior legal counsel. And I had an opportunity then to ma manage a few of the paralegals and legal departments at big companies as you scale up. Well, a number of different times reorganize who's doing what. And at some point in time, Justin then also had oversight with, of the employment law team. So different people came into the group. I got to be a manager for a few years. And then I think right after we did a really exciting acquisition in 2014, I, I remember celebrating my promotion to director in Paris right after we had reached a merger agreement on a deal. And that was fun. So I, I was a director. Three years after I had gotten here, I made it to director. And that's kind of in, in the law firm world, we think of that as equivalent to junior non-equity partner, but it's a big deal. By three years in, I already felt like I had some life-changing experiences. And that's, is a three-year path to director. I don't, the internal titles are something that are still relatively, relatively foreign to me. So I know there's sometimes there are legal titles and then there are general titles, right? So there's yeah. VP, which is a business title. Yeah. There's associate counsel, associate senior counsel. It's, uh, can you just give us the landmarks? Yeah, there, it is, yeah, it is fraught with confusion in this world because every company has their own taxonomy. The equivalent, and we use this title also at Adobe, to director is associate general counsel. And that's, I, for me, I think that's the title that when you go in-house at a company, you really feel like you made it and you feel like a valued leader in that legal department once you make it to associate general counsel. So that for me happened in 2014. And I held that role for several years then. And, I, and, and another piece of advice I give people when they're working at large companies is this goes back to the analogy you gave earlier, but I said, you have to learn to love the job you have. And it is a gift to your manager to show them that you love the job you have before you shift into that zone 
of going for the next one. And we all know people who are just never satisfied. They might even have a tattoo that says never satisfied and they're quite proud of that. But for me, it was really important after I hit a milestone, like making it to director, to operate in that mode of just loving my job. And I did that for about three or four years. And that was a really great time for me. Yeah, Adam Newman, we had recently on the podcast, he's chief of staff at the Big Ten Conference for Commissioner Kevin Warren. And he actually got that job less than two years out of law school, made this point that you really have to be good at what you're doing before focusing on the extras, which is another way of saying your point focuses on the enjoyment is on the mastery. I struggled with being satisfied with my role from my first internship at Fidelity when I was a legal intern and in law school. And I was like jumping all over, give me more of this, give me more of this, give me more of this. And I did my work well, but it was like super over eager into being in a law firm and really wanting to go around and say, why are you doing this way? This is stupid. Change this up. And it's the... It, it's challenging for a personality like mine to be content with without jumping all over the place. And to some extent, that's the internal work that I referenced. Yeah. I, that parable is super applicable to me and working on those internal skills. But also it's a question of right match, right time. For some people, the right place is to continue working along and doing it slowly. And for some people, you might have so much jumpy energy that you actually got to go do something on your own. And yeah, that's the route I did take, whether or not I could have taught myself to do the other route. I don't know. Maybe I just didn't have the discipline and maturity <laughs> at the time. But it's this is one of the big, I think, points of tension for very capable people is if you're going to go into an organization, the process often of moving up is slow. And so you need to learn to love what you're doing and excel at it and not show that you're chafing at not getting more responsibility. For me, I don't think it was a lesson I could have fully learned until I was managing. And because when you're managing people, suddenly little reflections of yourself and what annoys you and you really notice the things that just make whoever on your team gives you energy you ask why is it that when i meet with them i'm walking away with more energy and then you learn some lessons managers jonathan good managers ask that reflective question i hope i'm a good manager no the fact that you're asking that reflective question i to me means manage managing just like anything else these are learnable skills And the critical question is, are you asking the reflective questions necessary to get you there? So I love that you're highlighting that you're asking that question. How are they making you feel good? Because that's how you evolve to go do more of that. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, We talk about a lot that EQ, not IQ, is what makes for really good managers. And one of, there's all different ways of breaking down what EQ means or emotional intelligence. But one of them is self-awareness. And you, you have to... When you're observing all of these things in the external world, turn it around and look at yourself and figure out like what's the dirty truth of the things that annoy me and others, how I do them. And I'm sure there are many ways, but yeah, that's how I eventually figured out, I think, how to be happy in role was at least that was a I love these points because so much of the development and career and satisfaction, it's not just about where you are and what you're doing. It's also about the skills and the internal skills you need to build in order to really thrive, both personally and I think on the business side, because that plays through into how you are at work also. Yeah. And so you, one thing that we jumped over before is you moved to Utah, right? Entirely for this job. And you had some friends there, but were you you married at the time? 
I was. We When I was job hunting, my wife was expecting our first child and she was born two weeks before I started. So I did my first week at Adobe in Boston. And then I drove across the country alone in a Honda Fit for 37 hours and met my wife and my infant out here in Salt Lake City, where I've been ever since. So yeah, it was a big change. My wife grew up here and her parents live in the neighborhood. So we had help help with the baby and we loved, I loved visiting them, loved the mountains. I spent a lot of time outdoors and that's good for my mental health and my physical health. The move to Salt Lake City was definitely a positive. Okay. Okay. But you had been there before and yeah. you had relatives there. So it did have yeah. some context. Yeah. I, um, no, no community other than just my mother and father-in-law, but I did have context and very quickly found my community out here. The outdoorsy crowd is hard to miss. Nice, nice. I was going to, I was about to jump off on this dedication point. If you want the opportunity and it's really there, you go somewhere you've never been and know nobody and so on. So you have part of it because it was new for you and you didn't have community and the like, but there was some connection. Ah, so much for that pure dedication point. Awesome. Okay. So you're a few years at Adobe and sounds like the corporate legal function is growing. You become director and right now you're at investor. You're the head of investor relations. I know it's. Yes. Okay, so you're head of investor relations, and there's some. There, I think we have a few years in between those spaces. Yeah. So, time travel us a bit. Over. Yeah, I think. Yeah, because we really haven't started to talk about yet how I went from practicing law to to being a finance professional or a business professional. So for let's see, for, from 2004 to 2018, I was in that role that I mentioned earlier that I was happily performing. In 2018, 2011, Jonathan, 2011, sorry? 2011, right? Oh, so sorry. I think I left out a 10. So let's say that again. From 2014 to 2018, I was in that director level role. In 2018, my good friend, Justin, moved over to the finance team to be one of the business unit CFOs. And that was when I had the opportunity to lead the corporate legal team as serving as assistant secretary to the board of directors, reporting to our general counsel. And that was a really huge transformation in my life where I really got to be a part of the leadership team of the company and I got promoted to VP. And I think I had always been encouraged at Adobe to not just have a legal framework or a, a risk lens, but get to know the company's business, have a point of view on the right thing. Don't just say, what, how should we buy this company, merger or asset agreement? But should we buy this company? And so I think that was something I was always encouraged to do and I always did. But once I made it to VP, I think I had the opportunity really to just be a leader of the company who's been around for a long time and express my point of view and have a point of view on business issues. I got to know the board of directors. We spent a lot of time with the executive team. And one of my key clients for, since 2011, when I joined was Adobe's head of investor relations, who had been in that role since, I think, 1998. And so oftentimes when people say, how did you, how did you move from legal to finance? If I'm telling the short version of the story, I'll say, I think there's a long tradition of lawyers who had a client for so long that they started to think, oh, I would love to do their job. And I think I, I've learned that how, the trait. And when Mike announced that he was going to retire, Mike is our former head of investor relations. Right at the beginning of 2020, I expressed an interest in, in taking on the role. And in fact, five years before then, I told myself that I wanted that someday. And I wrote down on a piece of paper all of the banks that, that followed Adobe and the name of the lead analysts 
And I started memorizing it. And that was a way that I said, I, I want to be really conversant in this world because someday I would love to, to jump in and lead investor relations. And I can explain more about why and what the job really is, because it's not something any kid ever says they want to do when they grow up. But it worked out. I raised my hand when he retired and I got the opportunity. So I love that you were getting yourself ready, quote unquote, to be in the right seat at the right time, if you will have it that way, if that's an accurate framing. So I want to dig into the investor relations role before I have two quick questions. One is, would you have sped up the process in retrospect, right? If you could have toggled it and let's say without killing or retiring off Mike, let's just make this theoretical earlier, would you have liked to have sped that up or are you happy with the way things I I would not. I wouldn't have been ready. And it's funny because when I was younger, I thought I was ready for more sooner. But you learn with time that you weren't. I look back on the super eager person I was when I joined Adobe and I wasn't at all ready. And in fact, if you talk to me when I was in college, I was one of those people that feared public speaking more than death. And now my job is essentially being a public facing storyteller for Adobe. And I love telling stories, but I wasn't ready. It took me time to be ready for that. The Socratic method at Harvard Law School was a huge part of what got me ready, what got me on the path. I remember talking so nervously in in my 1L year that I would forget to stop and take a breath. And it took me a long time to really be ready for that level of role. So looking back, I really wouldn't change a thing. That's a very powerful answer because I think that uh, it's so easy for we often think we're ready for something or we're capable of doing something and we don't appreciate necessarily how, let's say we were put into that role tomorrow and we might be able to do it, but we might do it with a certain lack of maturity and expertise or insight. And if we were brought to the same role two years later, or five years later, as the case is over here, how we do it and how we succeed at that role could be entirely different. And sometimes We might be so eager to jump ahead because it could be an ego issue. It could be some other element of insecurity when there's really a lot of richness right here. And this goes back to our point of like, where are you? Can you learn to grow with it and be okay there and really maximize what you're doing? When I often talk to a new investor for the first time, the first question they'll ask me after they've given a brief overview of the fund is, could you just tell us a little bit about your journey and how long you've been at Adobe. And the sense of relief and satisfaction when I explain that I've been here for 11 years, and in fact, the first year I was here was before the company made this massive transition to being a subscription business. And charging me every month an arm and a leg, yes. It's it's very affordable and I'll pay it for the rest of my life when I've retired. I love the product, but it used to be like $2,000 or thousands of dollars to buy the box of Creative Suite. And we, my second year here was when we shifted to giving that for 30 bucks a month for students, 50 bucks a month for professionals. And it was this massive transformation that took years. But when investors understand that I've seen the company for over a decade, I saw the way it was before, I can tell the story, I was a part of that. When they understand I, was, I participated in the acquisitions that, that we, we use to build some of our businesses today, it gives me a credibility. There's a, there's, it's like, being an oral historian, investor relations, I mentioned storytelling. And if I had just come in and very quickly moved up to that role, I wouldn't really have the credibility. And I also need credibility internally with Adobe's leaders 
to to explain my thoughts on what's going on in the market and share the feedback we're hearing from investors. And you just wouldn't be effective in the role, but either internal or external, unless you've put in the time. And I think that's the reason why it happened when it was supposed to happen. And I, even a couple years earlier, I wouldn't have been ready for the role. So let's hear more about the role day to day. What's a day in the life look like? Yeah, it, de- it depends on the time of the quarter because every quarter we have earnings. And I'll, so I'll start from not earnings, but I'll end there. A typical week following when we've posted our most recent results will be talking to you know, between six and eight different investors every day on the phone. And I like to do phone only. I think, I think the ideas and the conversation is actually better when we're not staring at ourselves on the screen with Zoom or Microsoft Teams. And so I'm old school, we talk on the phone and it's very much the Socratic method in law school. There's both, there's a conversation and there's an argumentation that's taking place because investors will wanna throw some tough questions at me. This is the bear case on the company. How do you respond to that? And you need to be not salesy, but transparent, convincing and credible likable. Sometimes when you need to dig in, when they go too far, you need to have the thick skin to dig in. And so I I do a lot of these half hour, usually conversations, sometimes an hour if it's a really big fund. And then in between, I'm working on internal things where we have lots of goals that the team is working on that we need to get done. And we have operations that we have to handle. And then we'll have every window, every quarter, We'll have a few different public facing events. We're all partner with an executive and we'll do a, a road show where we'll talk to a bus tour of investors. They'll webcast that and we'll put it on the website. And then I, I individually do a number of events with different banks that so, they'll webcast and a lot of Q&As, a lot of his q and I'm somewhat confused here because Adobe is obviously a very prominent public company in all our lives. And I didn't realize that nevertheless, there's all these investors to be talking to. In my head, it's like, you're a prominent public company, all the mutual funds hold you, the decision of whether to hold your stock or not. Maybe there's some hedge funds or some like a couple players here and there, but it sounds like that's not the case. It sounds like on a continuous basis, you're talking to investors there's, to convince there's, them to buy more, yeah. so to say. There's constantly more demand for investor conversations than supply of me and members of my team to talk to them. So we could be talking all day long. If you are a mid-sized investment fund and you have $20 billion to spend, you'll have analysts who go deep studying different sectors. And part of, before you're going to put a billion dollars of your client's funds in a particular equity, you're going to do due diligence. Just like before Adobe would buy a company, we do due diligence. And, And one of the boxes that's really important for them to check is they talk to company management they get a chance to ask what are invest what are other investors asking what they're reading my body language and my tone they, a lot of them ask for not just me but members of our c suite to talk to them so it's a really critical part of their due diligence process before they're ready to go to their boss the portfolio manager and say i'm recommending we buy adobe because the first thing their boss is going to say is did you talk to the company tell me about that meeting now is there an internal priority to convince or frame differently. Where is it on the priority chain? Because in my, the way I would think about it naturally is the business priority is to build a great business, right? And 
the more you build a great business and it generates through to the bottom line and hits the financials, naturally, investor sentiment, the company is doing great, will rise and more people want to buy it and pay more for the money. So that is what I would think is the business priority. But it sounds like there's also this kind of sale where it's like, there's lots of investors interested in us. We want to go ahead and allocate you know, some resource and resources and prioritization to convincing them that we're worth spending more money on. Our valuation should be higher. They should put more money on, in us based on relative to where our current stock price is. I, th- I think a smaller company, a less known brand might might articulate it like you did. But Adobe, I, I wouldn't describe anything we do on our investor relations team as salesy. If you talk to any public company CFO, they would tell you that one of their core individual responsibilities is talking to their key investors. It really is. It's relations. It's there. There is a constant relationship and you get to know each other and they are the owners of the company. And it's a really good two-way conversation. And the feedback you get from investors that have been with you for a long time is really valuable as well. So for Adobe, it is, it's a two-way conversation. There's a, an incredible amount of demand for Adobe in the market. But I, the other thing I would say is I agree with what you said. I, my point of view is I don't want Adobe building out a quote-unquote world-class investor relations org. I don't need a dozen professionals. We're a fairly small team because I want Adobe to go out and hire the best product developers, the best product managers, the best salespeople to grow the business. Because when you have the best products in the world and when you have an incredible business, your valuation is going to be just fine. So I, I think for a company of our scale, Adobe's investor relations team is fairly small. There's four of us, but we definitely have big. Okay, so one thing that the learning point for me that I'm hearing there is the lens is more one of engagement with owners or prospective owners vis-a-vis the business rather than, let's say, maximizing share price. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's almost most quarters, I would say, I have conversations with the owners of more than half of the company's shares. So we're talking to the people who have owned Adobe for a really long time. They know us well. Yeah. And it, it's a constant process. Now, that's how I would describe the open window where we're communicating with the world. At the end of the quarter, then we go into what's called quiet period. And then it's all hands on deck, look, looking at the financials, understanding what happened in the business, understanding what the drivers were for the numbers with the revenue and the earnings. And in this aspect, there's a lot of legal compliance. And my legal career was spent learning to draft the 8Ks and the 10Qs. These are the public filings that describe financials. And draft up effectively a script for your quarterly earnings call. And we do a lot of Q&A prep with the executive team. And by law, every quarter, public companies have to tell the world what the financial performance was and explain it in a way that they can understand it. And then also give targets about what the trends are we see today and how the future looks for the company. And so those two or three weeks where you're doing earnings, that's really a big show. And you rinse, repeat, and relive that cycle every three months. And for anyone listening who's not familiar, the quiet period is a certain legislatively mandated period of time or regulatory period of time that you're not allowed to the sharing information that's about to come out so that no one gets it in advance, preferentially. That's right. We have to legally make sure that the entire world is publicly receives the financial results all at the same time. So 
Is this a role that evolves over time in terms of what you're doing or is the change in terms of the company's cycles and what challenges that presents organically as the company? Yeah, I'll say this. I don't think the role will ever get boring because the world the world is always an interesting place. I started leading investor relations just a few weeks into the pandemic. Now we're seeing a macro environment that has all kinds of unexpected aspects like a ground war in Europe. And so we're constantly learning part of a big part of my job is to be aware every day of what's going on in the world and understand the implications for Adobe and our business and be able to explain that. And so I, I think it constantly has external contours. And then I often say in a tech company, three years is a mini generation. Every three years, there's so much new innovation and new products that there's a lot of new things to talk about. And I think the reason I love it so much is my point of view, and I always recommend this to attorneys in-house, if it's not a legal meeting, you're doing the job wrong if you talk the whole time. I feel, and I learned that when I was in the legal department, I would make sure to speak up only when I really had something valuable to say. And that means you have a lot of, you have to be reserved when you're practicing law. And after being at Adobe for a decade, for me, now having the opportunity to be the storyteller and get to talk throughout the meeting is really fun. And it's something I enjoy. Okay. So it sounds to me that this is a two-way street role in the sense that your part of your job is translating Adobe out to investors or prospective investors. But there's also understanding the concerns of the world or the environment, information coming in to you from that, the people you're talking to, and translating that back to company or company leadership in terms of prioritization and what's going on in the outside world. Absolutely. Yeah, I better have an answer any given day on what's happening in the market and why. What did such and such a company say in their public earnings? So we're constantly listening to other companies as they go out. And what are they saying today about the trends in inflation and how it's impacting their business? What are they saying about in Europe, given the Ukraine war? So we, uh, we're a critical information source inside of the company for what we're seeing externally. And that's a big part of how we spend our time. And so you, your job is to bring that back to leadership. And does that then inform major decisions on communication or on how to run the business as well? And do, are you then involved in that from, uh, from the investor relations perspective? What's that side of the job look like? We're a, the way I would describe it is we're a part of the team. We have awesome teammates who do strategy and who do communications and who are running the business. And Adobe, anyone who talks about Adobe's culture, the word you'll always hear is collaborative. And that was one of the reasons I joined years ago. And when we bring the, what we're seeing from the world and into the conversation, we're part of the collaboration in terms of what does it mean for Adobe? I don't want to over-rotate in, in terms of our internal strategic role, but we're definitely a part of that team. So, so one of the tracks that lawyers go on, that's obviously the super traditional track of staying in a locker room with any partner. Going in-house is probably, it might even be more common than that track. And lawyers will often go in-house and many of them will want to end up on the business side or in some sort of business role eventually. Are there key lessons, other key lessons that we haven't touched on that you would share to make it more likely 
for that to happen, for them to end up in investor relations seat in your case or sure. in parallel seat? One key lesson for me is if you want to end up at a company, and particularly if you think you might be interested in a non-legal role, there's some amount of time spent in law firms that is too long and makes the likelihood go significantly down. And I might have even in my own career, I've been approaching that, but I have, I've known people who came in-house from law firms and the culture shock was just so much that they went back to law firms. And I didn't mention this earlier, but in the first six months I worked at Adobe, I missed the billable hour. And I never expected that. But when I worked for a 19-hour day and drove home at 1 a.m. to my wife and my newborn daughter, it occurred to me that I had nothing to write down. I had nothing to show for it. I had no quota that I was ahead on. I just, it was just a day at work. And so I do think, one, my recommendation would be don't stay at the law firm too long if you think you want to be at a company. I think three to four years is probably the ideal stay. And then there are particular types of paths inside of companies that I think are more amenable to learning not just legal roles, but issues as well. Corporate is definitely one of them. I think the technology lawyers and the commercial lawyers also learn so much about the business and get a, a lot of opportunities to, to jump over to a business role. Okay, so there are roles in-house where they're more embedded with the nature of the business. So corporate legal, that's the role, the path that you took, where you're dealing with the securities filings, you need to really understand the business and be able to translate it out through the legal documents. Commercial, which by assume, I assume you mean contracts and yeah. all those issues that are native to all the parts of the business and sales in the business. Technology, I assume you mean IP-related legal functions. What are some that are not? What are legal functions that are where you're less likely to learn from? I'm sure there's thousands of exceptions to anything I throw out, but I think the people who spend their time in the litigation world really have a particular lens that attunes them to risks and the unlikely things that if they happen really could be catastrophic for a company. And that might, you might not see as many people come through litigation sorts of roles and then go into business roles. But again, sure, there are many listeners who can prove me wrong on that point, but I think litigators tend more to stay in legal function. Now, if someone were interested in going to a company because they want to get to the business side and they know the legal is not for them, what, is, what do you think of the wisdom of the decision to go? Would you advise them to find some other route or would you advise them that certain circumstances, it, that does make sense. It certainly makes sense in, in, in many circumstances. In my own defense, now that I'm in finance and I report to the CFO, I have a long list of examples that I give of people that came before me that moved from legal to non-legal roles. And, I, and if somebody suggests to me that is a, quote, non-traditional path, I'll get into an argument because I think it is a traditional path. But companies, big companies have lots of roles where where legal training is helpful, but you're on the business side, you're on the finance side. It might be someone involved in in the in contracting operations or sales operations, but not doing the legal work, but more making sure that deals get done and they get properly processed. And you learn a lot about how big companies operate. That's one example. I think HR is a place where you can have huge impact in big companies where legal training is really helpful. 
And I think communications, lawyers are good communicators. If they can learn to use fewer words like therein and heretofore. Whereas. Yeah, you can have a good career in public relations, communications at big companies. So there's a bunch of different ways. And I think it starts with just having conversations with people. So if I were to frame that a bit differently and say... If you were looking to optimize your route over to the business side, you know you're going in-house legal, but you want to optimize for that transition. Is there particular how would are there particular points in terms of the type of company? Some we've talked a bit about the type of role or anything else that you think would be wise to think through in terms of how to optimize that decision. It's a tough one because I I'm tempted to say start having conversations with people in companies large and small about non-legal roles. But that, as we mentioned right at the outset, you sound a little bit crazy to people if you went to law school and took the took three years getting a legal education, you took the bar and you own a few hundred grand in debt and they say, wait, you don't want to be a lawyer. And I, in some ways, I, I might suggest that people do what I did, which is find an organization that you care about, first of all. If you're just looking for the right title or the right role, but you're not really into canned goods and it's a canned goods company, probably not going to be passionate about that, right? So if you start by thinking about what the company does for the world, then for me, I always use this rock band analogy because I used to be in a very bad one in college. It doesn't matter if you're playing the tambourine or you're playing backup guitar, but if you ultimately like the music they make, you're probably going to be happy. And then you can just start solving problems and getting to know people. And you'll very organically find your way to a role that suits you. And we tell you dozens of success stories at Adobe where people have gone from the legal org to the business or from other internal orgs to different functions. So it absolutely happens. But what's what all of those people would have in common is their awesome bandmates. Whatever instrument you give them, they're happy to play it. They're solving problems and they're awesome to work with. So I would say just start with the mission, find find whatever seat at the table you can find, and then it'll work itself out. I love that. The be driven by what's interesting to you, by something in your heart, company that touches something that's valuable to you, and then you'll find your way to add value. I love that. So I'll just ask you, do you regret going to law school? Or are you happy with your path in retrospect? I'm so happy with my path. I still think of it as such an unlikely outcome for a kid like me who, if you saw my report cards from middle school and high school, you never would have thought I would have ended up going to a top law school. I sometimes show them to my own kids so they know that dealing with failure isn't something that's catastrophic. But I think having the opportunity to go to law school, the ways it challenged me and forced me to get comfortable doing things that were so out of my comfort zone. It, yeah, it, I wouldn't be where I am today without it. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. This was an awesome conversation. Joseph, I had a blast. Thank you. Hello, Winding Paths listeners. If you're still with me, that means you probably enjoyed the episode, in which case, please, please, please scroll down in your podcast app right now and give us a raving five-star review so other people can learn about us and enjoy it too. Teachers said you should always share good things. If you have questions, suggestions, raging criticism, or amazing guest suggestions, please email me at joseph at getsomeclass.com. That's getsomeclass.com. Or connect to me on LinkedIn. Don't worry, we'll get a dedicated podcast email address soon enough. But don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and big things are built 
little by little. In the meantime, may you walk your own winding path well. <laughs>